0: Blessed Lord, who has caused all holy scriptures to be written for our learning, grant that we may in such wise hear them, read, mark, learn, and inwardly digest them, that by patience and comfort of thy holy word, we may embrace and ever hold fast the blessed hope of everlasting life, which thou hast given us in our Savior Jesus Christ, who liveth and reigneth with thee in the Holy Spirit, one God, forever and ever. Amen. Well, welcome back. We are in Acts chapter 10. If you are visiting with us for the first time, we are delighted to have you with us. Acts chapter 10, uh, beginning at verse 1. We are going to go ahead and read through the entire chapter. That doesn't mean that we'll necessarily make it through all of Acts chapter 10 today, but it does mean that in order for us to understand even the section that we are going to discuss, we need to read through everything So, it's a rather lengthy section. If you have your Bibles, you can just follow along with me. But Acts chapter 10, verses 1 through 48. (coughs) Now, at Caesarea, there was a man named Cornelius, a centurion of what was known as the Italian cohort, a devout man who feared God with all his household, gave alms generously to the people, and prayed continually to God. About the ninth hour of the day, he saw clearly in a vision an angel of God come in and say to him, Cornelius. And he stared at him in terror and said, What is it, Lord? And he said to him, Your prayers and your alms have ascended as a memorial before God. And now send men to Joppa and bring one Simon, who is called Peter. He is lodging with one Simon, a tanner, whose house is by the sea. When the angel who spoke to him had departed, he called two of his servants and a devout soldier from among those who attended him. And having related everything to them, he sent them to Joppa. The next day, as they were on their journey and approaching the city, Peter went up on the housetop, about the sixth hour to pray. And he became hungry and wanted something to eat. But while they were preparing it, he fell into a trance and saw the heavens opened and something like a great sheet descending, being let down by its four corners upon the earth. And Peter went down to the men and said, I am the one you are looking for. What is the reason for your coming? And they said, Cornelius, a centurion, an upright and God-fearing man, who is well spoken of by the whole Jewish nation, was directed by a holy angel to send for you to come to his house to hear what you have to say. So he invited them in to be his guests.
1: The next day... He arose and
0: went away with him, and some of the brothers from Joppa accompanied him. And on the following day, they entered Caesarea. Cornelius was expecting them and had called together his relatives and close friends. When Peter entered, Cornelius met him and fell down at his feet and worshipped him. But Peter lifted him up and saying, Stand up, I too am a man. And as he talked with him, he went in and found many persons gathered. And he said to them, you yourselves know how unlawful it is for a Jew to associate with or to visit anyone of another nation. But God has shown me that I should not call any person common or unclean. So when I was sent for, I came without objection. I asked them why you sent for me. And Cornelia said, four days ago, about this hour, I was praying in my house at the ninth hour. And behold, a man stood before me in bright clothing and said, Cornelius, your prayer has been heard, and your alms have been remembered before God. Send, therefore, to Joppa and ask for Simon, who is called Peter. He is lodging in the house of Simon, a tanner by the sea. So I sent for you at once, and you have been kind enough to come. Now, therefore, we are all here in the presence of God to hear all that you have been commanded by the Lord. So Peter opened his mouth and said, And he commanded us to preach to the people and testify that he is the one appointed by God to be judge of the living and the dead. To him all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. And while Peter was still saying these things, the Holy Spirit fell on all who heard the word. And the believers from among the circumcised who had come with Peter were amazed because the gift of the Holy Spirit was poured out even on the Gentiles. They were hearing them speaking in tongues and extolling God. Then Peter declared, Can anyone withhold water for baptizing these people who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have? And he commanded them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. Then they asked him to remain for some days. Uh, this is one of the most significant events uh, in the New Testament. Uh, Certainly one of the most significant events in the book of Acts. It's really a turning point in the Acts narrative. We're going to begin to see a shift uh, in the book of Acts and in the narrative. And the concentration is now going to be away from a ministry to the Jews and more to a ministry to the Gentiles. Uh, This should not surprise us because if you go back and you read through the Gospels, you begin to see that Jesus had come not to be the savior of a particular people, and we'll unpack that more today, but he became to be the savior of the world. And I think that Peter was a big part of this, proclaiming this message to the whole world. Uh, If you recall, on one occasion, Jesus had taken his disciples and he had led them up out of Galilee towards Caesarea Philippi. Now, there's a Caesarea mentioned in the section that I just read to you. It's not the same Caesarea. Uh, the section that we're reading today concerns Caesarea Philippi. Uh, it was a place along the coast north of Joppa, which is modern-day Jaffa today. And it was the headquarters for the Roman governor in the province of Judea. Uh, the Roman governor also had a palace, and he had a headquarters in Jerusalem. And that's where he would go for the great feast but most of the time the Romans were headquartered at this place called Caesarea Maritima, Caesarea by the sea, maritime, Maritima, that's where it comes from. I'm talking about another Caesarea when I talk about Jesus taking his disciples up out of Galilee. He went to Caesarea Philippi, and it was up there in Caesarea Philippi, which was an odd place for Jesus, by the way, to take his disciples. Why? Well, because first of all, it was out of Jewish territory. And most Jews were very hesitant to go outside of Jewish territory. In fact, you'll recall that they didn't even like to pass through Samaria because they considered the Samaritans to be half-breeds and unclean, let alone to go outside of Jewish territory altogether. But on this occasion, Jesus did. He took his disciples up north to the foothills of Mount Hermon, the headwaters of the Jordan River, to this place called Caesarea Philippi. Uh, It was a place that had fallen into disrepair and had been rebuilt in grand style by Philip the Tetrarch, one of the sons of Herod. And uh, he had built it as a monument to himself. But then he thought better of it and realized that if he builds a monument to himself, a great city as a monument to himself, he's probably gonna run afoul of Caesar. So he renamed the place Caesarea Philippi, as a monument to Caesar and to himself, Philip the Tetrarch. And it was basically a playpen for the rich, for the affluent, for the influential. And furthermore, it was a center of all kinds of cultic practices, all kinds of false religions, and it was a center for the cult of worshiping the emperor. And it was the sort of place, sort of like a Vegas today. Uh, What happens up there in Caesarea Philippi stays in Caesarea Philippi. And so as I said, it was an odd place to go. And those of you who are going to the Holy Land with me in the spring, we're actually going to go to this place. It's a remarkable place. Uh, There is uh, the worship of the god Pan, for example, the half goat, half man figure who played the flute was also centered there. And there is a huge cave out of which water flows. And many people believe that that was the entrance into Hades. So as I said, it was was just a lot of syncretism, a mixture of all kinds of religions, all kinds of faith. And it's there against that background in that context. Jesus asked his disciples a question. He says, who do men say that I am? In other words, look at all of this. (laughs) Who do men say that I am? Am I just one more option among many? Am I just, you know, one more choice, one more God, whatever it is? And you'll recall that immediately the disciples begin to spit out answers. They said, well, some say you're Elijah. Some say you're John the Baptist. Some say you're one of the prophets. But then Jesus gets very personal. And he says, yes, I, yes. But who do you say that I am? And at that point, everybody fell silent except for one. And that was Peter. And Peter blurted out, you are the Christ. You are the Messiah. You are the son of the living God. And you'll recall what Jesus said to him. He said, blessed are you, Simon son of Jonah, for this has not been revealed to you by men, but it has been revealed to you by my father in heaven. And on this rock, I will build my church and I will give you what? The keys... To the kingdom. Now what did Jesus mean by that expression, I will give to you the keys to the kingdom? Well, it depends upon which branch of the church you come from. Roman Catholics believe that what was happening there was that Jesus was designating Peter as the first pope, as it were, as the first pontiff, as the head apostle. And bestowing upon him a special power, a special authority, an authority to grant entrance or exclusion to the kingdom of God. And therefore, when the Pope speaks today, ex cathedra or ex cathedral from his throne, he speaks infallibly. That's the Roman Catholic teaching. And why? Because he sits on the throne of who? Peter. St. Peter's Basilica in Rome. So that's the Roman Catholic interpretation. He was given the keys to the kingdom, and that's what that means. Now, most Protestants do not hold to that view, obviously. Uh, Protestants generally hold to the view that when Peter was given the keys to the kingdom, what he was basically given was the kind of authority and power that is entrusted to every Christian minister to assure people to pronounce absolution to those who have confessed their sins. Not to grant forgiveness but to grant the assurance of forgiveness. In the event that a person has confessed their sins truly, then the minister can stand up and pronounce absolution, the declaration of assurance that you have been forgiven. And so many Protestants hold that that's what was meant when Jesus handed Peter the keys to the kingdom. There is, however, a third interpretation. And I'm not sure exactly what to make of it, but I do find it Somewhat intriguing. You'll notice that any time Peter is given or depicted as being given the keys of the kingdom, as in this stained glass window, you'll notice that he's given how many keys? Two. And one commentator has suggested that what was happening here was that God was granting to Peter the privilege of opening the treasures of the gospel, unlocking the treasures of the gospel to two great peoples. To the Jews first. But also to the Gentiles. And we can see that here in the book of Acts, can't we? In the first part of the book of Acts, that is exactly what Peter has been doing and the other apostles have been doing. They have been sharing the faith, but they've been sharing the faith primarily with people where? Well, in and around Jerusalem. In other words, to fellow Jews, they've been sharing when they stood up and preached on Pentecost. They were preaching to who? To fellow Jews. And most of the converts, most of the members of the church in these early days were Jews. But now we're beginning to see here in Acts chapters 9 and 10 and following a shift. Peter was called to go where? Up to Samaria, which was out of Judea, which was an unusual place we said for him to go. We said when Philip, the early deacon, went into Samaria, it was a courageous thing to do because the Jews hated the Samaritans. But he'd been so successful in terms of his ministry up there that Peter, as the head of the apostles, decided to go up and investigate. And lo and behold, it is there that he begins to have a change of heart. And we see here in Acts chapter 10 that he becomes the first of the apostles. Even though we associate the apostle Paul with the one who is the the man who is the minister to the Gentiles, what's interesting is that Peter becomes the first of the apostles to preach the gospel, not merely to Jews, but also to what? To the Gentiles as well. Which is good news for you and for me. Because I rather suspect that most of us have Gentile heritage. Now there may be somebody out there that has a Jewish heritage. But most of us are Gentiles. And this is good news for us. So however you interpret the keys of the kingdom. We have to acknowledge the fact that what is happening here in Acts chapter 10 is highly Significant. It is a turning point in the story of the early church. As I said, from here on out, we are going to see a ministry to the Jews fade out. It doesn't mean that the apostles are still not active proclaiming the mes- message to the Jews. Of course they are. But as far as Luke is concerned, the rest of his narrative is going to be focused primarily on a ministry to the Gentiles. Furthermore, we're going to begin to see Peter fade out of the picture. He doesn't disappear completely, but at least in terms of the Acts narrative, Peter's going to begin to fade out of this picture. And another man, who does become primarily the apostle to the Gentiles, will fade back in. We've already encountered the apostle Paul, and we've already talked about the story of his conversion, but we said he then sort of fades out for a couple of chapters. He's going to reappear in Acts chapter 13, and the rest of the book will be concentrated primarily on his ministry. So this is a turning point in the book of Acts. It's a turning point in the story of the early church. But as I've already said, it should not take us by surprise. Why? Because this was actually all a part of God's plan from the beginning. How many of you recognize that picture? (laughs) Most of you do. I would hope so. Those of you who go to St. Philip's anyway, you pass through the narthex, it hangs above the door. Uh, It's a painting entitled The Nukdemidas. It means well it's the song of Simeon. Let us now thy servant depart. Uh, Keep your finger there in the book of Acts and turn, if you will, to Luke chapter two for a moment. Luke chapter 2, this is the beginning of Luke's gospel, and the birth of Jesus Christ has just been told, and in Luke chapter 2, verse 21, we read this, and at the end of the eight days, when he was circumcised, he was called Jesus. Jesus. He took him up in his arms and blessed God and said. Now, I'm not going to read you the version that you have here in Luke chapter 2 in the English Standard Version. Because most of us, if you were raised on the prayer book, are familiar with another version of it. The King James Version. But basically goes like this. Lord, let us now thy servant depart in peace according to thy word. For these eyes of mine have seen thy salvation, which thou hast prepared for all the world to see a light to enlighten the who the Gentiles and the glory of Thy people Israel. So from the very beginning, Jesus was to be a light to who? To enlighten the Gentiles. This should not have been a surprise to Peter or to any of the other apostles. This was all part of the plan. And mind you, if you go back to the book of Isaiah, you will quickly discover that Jesus had all along been promised to be the Savior, not of a particular people, but a Savior of the whole world. And that's where we're beginning to see this unfold. So today I want to talk a little bit, and this is going to be some flipping around in your Bible, and and to some of you it may even seem like some pretty heavy theology, but it's very, very important what I want to talk about today. I want you to understand That this, that, that, that when God works, God always finishes what he starts. God is never left scratching his head by the wickedness or the sinfulness of men and wondering, oh, what am I going to do now? Now, many of you have heard me tell in five minutes what I think is the overall picture, the overall message of the Bible. I'm going to do that again, but with a slightly different emphasis. Uh, If you look at the Bible, the story of the Bible is is pretty simple. It's got one author and one theme. Uh, The author is God. Now, the Bible, of course, has many writers. We recognize that. That's one of the reasons why we can have a reading from the Old Testament from the book of Isaiah. But when we get to the end, we don't say the word of Isaiah. Thanks be to God. We say what? The word of the Lord. Same thing when we're reading from the Epistle to the Romans. We may say a reading from St. Paul's Epistle to the Romans, but when we get to the end, we say what? The Word of the Lord. So what we acknowledge is that while the Bible has many writers, the Holy Spirit so guided those writers that what they produced was ultimately God's Word. So the Bible has one author, and it ultimately has one theme. And what is the theme of the Bible? From the book of Genesis the whole way through to the book of Revelation, the one theme is the saving work of Jesus Christ. You can see that at the very beginning of the Bible. After Adam and Eve fall in the garden, uh, we're told that God came and found them hiding in the garden. And God said to them, why are you hiding? And Adam says, because we're naked. And the Lord says, who told you you were naked? Have you eaten of that tree I told you not to eat from? And Adam says, the woman thou gavest me, she caused me to do this. And the woman says, it's the serpent. And the serpent just sort of stands there. He doesn't, you know, I always say it's corny, but the serpent doesn't have a leg to stand on. There it is. I mean, that's the situation. And God then curses the serpent, doesn't he? But it's a curse with a promise. He says, the seed of the woman will one day crush the head of the serpent. The serpent will bruise his heel, but he will crush your head. Well, who is the seed of the serpent or the seed of the woman? It's Jesus. This is what theologians call in Genesis the proto-euangelion, the proto-gospel. The first preaching of the gospel it takes place, not when you get to Matthew in the beginning of the New Testament. The first preaching of the gospel happens way back in the book of Genesis at the time of the fall. So here's the story. God creates a world. It's a beautiful world. It's a magnificent world. God declares a blessing on it. After each successive day of creation, he says, it is good, it is good. He gets to the end, creates man in his image, and he says, it is very good. Man has got this... Wonderful position in the created order. He is the pinnacle of all things. He is God's regent over creation. It is his responsibility to extend the blessings of Eden to the whole of the created order. But man is not satisfied with being what? Second best. He wants to be number one. He wants to be like God. That's what the serpent said. Ah, but if you eat of the tree, you will be like God. And that's what he wants. Because to be like God means to be in control. It means to be in charge. It means to be the master of your own fate and the captain of your own destiny. And that's really what we all want. And if you think about it, that is the root of every sin in the world today. But here's the problem. God takes seriously this business of being God. And so when they decided that they wanted to be God, when they decided to eat of the tree of which God had warned them not to eat of, they what? They trespassed. That's why we talk about sin as trespassing. Forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who have trespassed against us. They trespassed on God's territory. Now, if you trespass on somebody else's territory, are there consequences? Well, frequently. We used to have a neighbor in my neighborhood that says, Beware, you know, trespassers, beware of unidentified flying objects. They may be bullets. Um, You trespass on somebody else's territory and there's going to be consequences. God had already told them that they trespassed on his territory. If they ate of the tree of which he had told them not to eat, they would surely die. So that is the story of the fall of man. And you might think, well, that's the end of it. But it wasn't. God was determined that man's sin was not going to thwart his purposes. He was going to get what Bishop N.T. Wright calls the Adam Project back on track. And so what does he do? He calls a particular man by the name of Abraham. And through this particular man, he calls a particular nation, a particular people, the Hebrew people, the Jewish people. And through the Jewish people, he was going to bring a what? A particular savior. Jesus Christ. And through this particular savior, here's where it gets interesting, he was going to save not a particular people, but the whole world. Now that's God's great plan of redemption. That's what went wrong. Here's how God is going to fix it by calling a particular man, by calling a particular nation, through that particular nation, calling a particular savior who will become the savior of the world. And all those who put their trust in him will never be separated from him. Neither height nor depth, neither angels nor principalities, neither things present nor things to come. Nothing else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. That is the great promise. And Paul unfolds this in the most powerful way in his epistle to the Romans. That's what Romans chapter 8 is really all about. What can separate us from the love of God? Nothing. Nothing. And yet, Paul, great thinker that he was, logical mind that he had, recognized that having unpacked this great message, he knew that somebody was going to raise an objection. And the objection was going to be, well, this all is wonderful and this sounds great. But when you say God was going to save the world, actually his very own people have rejected the gospel message. Isn't that's what happened I mean, my goodness, you get to Acts chapter 13 and we're going to see that Paul and his companion Barnabas went in and they preached the message and the Jews rejected it. And so they said, since you do not consider yourselves worthy of eternal life, we are now going to turn to the Gentiles. So it almost sounds as though God turns his back on the Jews and now turns the message over to the Gentiles. And that's how the gospel will spread. And so Paul knew that even though he was unpacking this wonderful message of eternal salvation for all who believe, somebody was going to raise the question and say, well, how can we be assured of eternal salvation if God's own people seem to have rejected the message? Well, turn to Romans chapter 10 for just a moment. Some of you are wondering, where in the world is he going with all this? But just hang in there with me. Romans chapter 10. We're going to start verse 11. Paul writes, For the scripture says, Everyone who believes in him, that is, in Jesus, will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. How then will they call on him whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe of him if they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. But they have not all obeyed the gospel. (laughs) For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us? So faith comes from hearing, and hearing from the word of Christ. But I ask, have they not heard? Indeed they have. For their voice has gone out to all the earth, and their words to the end of the earth. But I ask, did Israel not understand? First, Moses says, I will make you jealous of those who are not a nation. With a foolish nation, I will make you angry. Then Isaiah is so bold as to say, I have been found by those who did not seek me. I have shown myself to those who did not ask me. But of Israel, he says, all day long, I have held out my hands to a disobedient and contrary people. I ask then, has God rejected his people? This is the question. It seems as though God has rejected his people by going to the Gentiles. But Paul responds, by no means. Now, we're going to go ahead and read through these 36 verses. Listen carefully. I'll unpack it for you. But this is all important as to what we're talking about here in the book of Acts. Paul says God has not rejected his people. Well, explain that to us, Paul. Well, first of all, he says, I myself am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, a member of the tribe of Benjamin. So he says, when people say, well, God has rejected his own people, the Israelites, and he's gone now to the Gentiles. Paul says that's not true because guess what? I'm an Israelite. And God has not rejected me. He goes on. I'm a member of the tribe of Benjamin. God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. Do you not know what the scripture says of Elijah, how he appeals to God against Israel? Lord, they have killed your prophets, they have demolished your altars, and I alone am left, and they seek my life. But what is God's reply to him? I have kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. So too, at the present time, there is a remnant chosen by grace. Paul says, God has not rejected his people for at least two reasons. The first reason is, many of us are Israelites and we do believe. I myself, member of the tribe of Benjamin. And he could have pointed to Peter and to James and to John and all the rest. Second of all, he says, God never allowed all of Israel to be unbelieving. Even throughout the Old Testament, there was always a what? A faithful remnant. And he's saying there's a faithful remnant now. That should be an encouragement to us. You know, sometimes we look at the church and everything that's going on in the world and we think to ourselves, are we the only ones? Are we the only ones who have not bowed the knee to Baal? We must never forget that God always has a faithful remnant. He goes on then, verse 7. What then? Israel failed to obtain what it was seeking. The elect obtained it, but the rest were hardened. As it is written, God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes that would not see and ears that would not hear, down to this day. And David says, let their table become a snare and a trap, a stumbling block and a retribution for them. Let their eyes be darkened so that they cannot see and bend their backs forever. In other words, Paul is saying, but I won't deny the fact that yes, many today seem to have turned their back on God, have turned their back on the message of the Messiah, the Messiah who had been promised the whole way through the Old Testament. They of all people should have recognized it. John 1, he came to that which was his own, but his own what? Received him not. Of all people, they should have recognized him. And Paul acknowledges the fact that, yes, it appears from an earthly perspective that many of the Jews have turned their backs on God. Verse 11, so I ask, did they stumble in order that they might fall? By no means. Rather, listen to this, this is the amazing part. Rather, through their trespass, through their rejection of the gospel, salvation has come to the Gentiles. To do what? So as to make Israel jealous. Now, if their trespass means riches for the world, and if their failure means riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their full inclusion Mean. He goes on. Now I am speaking to you Gentiles. Inasmuch then as I am an apostle to the Gentiles, I magnify my ministry in order somehow to make my fellow Jews jealous and thus save some of them. Hold on to that word jealous for a moment. For if their rejection means the reconciliation of the world, what will their acceptance mean but life from the dead? If the dough offered as firstfruits is holy, so is the whole lump. And if the root is holy, so are the branches. But if some of the branches were broken off and you, although a wild olive shoot, were grafted in among the others and now share in the nourishing root of the olive tree, do not be arrogant toward the branches if you are. Remember, it is not you who support the root, but the root that supports you. Then you will say branches were broken off so that I might be grafted in. That is true. They were broken off because of their unbelief, but you stand fast through faith. So do not become proud, but fear. For if God did not spare the natural branches, neither will he spare you. Note then the kindness and the severity of God. Severity toward those who have fallen, but God's kindness toward you, provided you continue in kindness. Otherwise, you too will be cut off. And even if they, if they do not continue in their unbelief, will be grafted in, for God has the power to graft them in again. For if you were cut from what is by nature a wild olive tree and grafted contrary to nature into a cultivated olive tree, how much more will these natural branches be grafted back into their own olive tree? Lest you be wise in your own sight, I want you to understand this mystery, brothers. A partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And in this way, all Israel will be saved. As it is written, the deliverer will come from Zion. He will banish ungodliness from Jacob. And this will be my covenant with them when I take away their sins. As regards the gospel, they are enemies of God for your sake. But as regards election, they are beloved for the sake of their forefathers. For the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable for just as you are one time disobedient to god but now have received mercy because of their disobedience so too so too they have become disobedient in order that by the mercy shown to you they also may now receive mercy for god has consigned all to disobedience that he may have mercy on all oh the depths and the wisdom and the knowledge of god how unsearchable are his judgments And how inscrutable his ways. For from him and through him and to him are all things to be glory forever. Here's what Paul is saying. He's saying, think about the story. Mankind fell. God called a particular man Abraham. Through that particular man he called a particular people, the Israelites. It's through the Jews that a particular Savior came. That Savior was going to be the Savior to all people. His own people, however, the Jews rejected him. And so what happened? The gospel is now going out to the Gentiles. But it is not as though God has forsaken his own people. This is a partial hardening. He is saying they have been cut off for a time. And it is through the Gentiles who are now blessed with salvation because of the Jews. That the Jews will be provoked to jealousy. They'll look at these Gentiles and say, Look at the peace that they have, the joy, the hope that they have. They have found that in who? In a Jewish Savior, Jesus Christ. And Paul is saying, It is through the ministry of the Gentiles that the Jews themselves will be provoked to jealousy. And in Romans chapter 11, he's saying, In the last days, the Jews themselves will return to the message of salvation in Jesus Christ through the ministry of the Gentiles. And that's why Paul says, now, who but God could have thought of that? (laughs) That, That's what he says. These people are the, it's through them that the Savior of the world comes, but they reject him, and a people who were not God's people suddenly get grafted into the olive tree, and they begin to, to flourish. But God has not forsaken his ancient people. It's through these ingrafted branches that he's going to, what, provoke the natural branches to jealousy. And they will return to the Lord. And all Israel, Jews and Gentiles, will be saved. And that's why Paul breaks into this great hymn of praise. For from him and through him and to him are all things To him be glory forever. Oh, the depths of the riches and the wisdom and the knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. Paul's saying, who but God could have come up with a plan like that? It's all a part of the plan. The Jews would reject their own Messiah. So the gospel would go to the Gentiles, to people like you and me. But it's by the Gentiles receiving the gospel that ultimately it will go back to God's ancient people. Now why is that significant? Because that is exactly what we see. This plan finally unfolding. It's a plan that God had from the beginning of creation. But for the first time we're beginning to see that plan unfold in the life of the church. Turn to Ephesians chapter 3 for just a moment. And then we're going back to Acts. Ephesians chapter 3, beginning at verse 1, Paul says this. For this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner for Christ Jesus on behalf of you Gentiles, assuming that you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you, Paul uses one word three times. The word mystery. Verse three. How the mystery was made known to me by revelation. Verse four. When you read this, you can perceive insight into the mystery of Christ. Verse six. This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. What does Paul mean by that word mystery? When we hear the word mystery, most of us assume that the word mystery means a conundrum, a puzzle, something that we can't figure out. But in the ancient world, the Greek word mysterion really didn't have to do with a puzzle. It was a term that was associated with what were known as mystery religions. A mystery was something that was unknown except to the initiated. It's sort of like being in a club, whether it's the Masonic Lodge, or whether it's one of the animal lodges, the moose, or the elk, or whatever it is. They have their own secret rights. And unless you are initiated into it, those rights are not revealed to you. It's only once you've been initiated in that the rights are revealed. That's the way that this term mystery is used. There were certain things that were hidden and they were only revealed to the initiated. Paul is saying that God had a plan all along, not just to save the Jews, but to save the Jews and the Gentiles. This had been his plan all along. It was hidden from most people. The Jews didn't believe that the Gentiles could be saved unless they became what? A Jew first. And the Gentiles look at it and say, well, the Jews have rejected the gospel of salvation. Now we have en- we've embraced it. But Paul is saying, no, 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 no. It's always been God's plan to save both Jews and Gentiles in this one person, Jesus Christ. And this has been a mystery hidden in the past. But now to those of us who have received the Holy Spirit, the truth is being revealed. This great mystery that by his death upon the cross, God has broken down the dividing wall of hostility between these two peoples, and he has made them one. Now you have to understand, that was a revolutionary message in the first century. But you and I would not be sitting here today if it weren't true. And that's why I say, this section of Acts is a turning point Because now, for the first time, the gospel is going out to a people who the Jews would say were not God's people. It's going out to the Gentiles. The mystery is being revealed, and it's being revealed first and foremost to the Apostle Peter. Now, all of this preparation for this great mystery being unfolded starts with this man by the name of Cornelius who was Cornelius at Caesarea there was a man named Cornelius a centurion of what was known as the Italian cohort a devout man who feared God with all his household gave alms generously to the poor and prayed continually to God we know that Cornelius was a centurion what does that mean he was an officer in the Roman army now we all know that the Jews despised the Romans they absolutely hated the Romans In fact, in the first century, there were over 100, listen to this, over 100 Messianic uprisings in just the first century. That's one, on average, per year. And of course, it was one of these Messianic uprisings that ultimately led to the destruction of Jerusalem in the year 70 A.D., The Roman general Titus came in and he put the city to the sword. Over 100,000 men, women, and children were massacred. Blood was running in the streets of Jerusalem. And the rest that managed to survive escaped to the hills, where they were eventually rounded up and put to the sword as well, many of them, at places like Masada. So you have to understand, there were lots of messianic movements in the first century. And that's because the Jews hated the Romans. They considered them to be pagans, polytheistic, and they were Gentiles. Well, it's interesting to note here that at Caesarea there was a man named Cornelius, a centurion. He was not only Roman, he worked for the evil empire, the real evil empire. He worked for the Romans. He was a Roman soldier. He was an emblem of everything that the Jews hated. What's interesting, however, is this not the first time we encounter a centurion in the Bible. There was another centurion we encounter in the Bible, in the Gospel of Matthew. Turn there for a moment. Matthew chapter 8. Jesus encountered a centurion. Matthew chapter 8. When he entered a Capernaum, Matthew chapter 8 verse 5, a centurion came and followed him, appealing to him, Lord, my servant is lying paralyzed at home, suffering terribly. And he said to him, I will come and heal him. Now that was extraordinary for Jesus to even do that. He could have rejected this centurion's willingness or or plea, but Jesus didn't. But look at how the centurion replies. But the centurion replied, Lord, I am not worthy to have you come under my roof, but only say the word and my servant will be healed. In other words, he recognizes that he has no right to ask Jesus for anything. Jesus is a Jewish teacher, a Jewish healer. He is a Roman. He's desperate. And Jesus agrees to come. But the man says, no, no, I I know that I'm going to cause trouble for you. If if you come into my house, it's going to cause trouble for you as a Jew. I'm not worthy to have you come into my house. Simply say the word. I, I trust that if you say the word, your word is enough to heal. For I, too, am a man under authority with soldiers under me. And I say to one, go and he goes and to another, come and he comes. And to my servant, do this and he doesn't. And when Jesus said this, heard this. He marveled and said to those who followed him, Look, truly I tell you, with no one in Israel have I found such faith. Some of the highest praise that you find anywhere in the gospel. Jesus says, I have not found faith like this anywhere in Israel, except among a what? A pagan, a centurion. Well, Cornelius was a centurion. He commanded about 100 troops in the Roman army, 100 soldiers. He was a powerful, important man, but he was a Gentile. Furthermore, we're told that he was devout, and he was God-fearing. He was pious, and he was generous with the poor. Furthermore, we're told that he was prayerful. He gave alms generously to the people and prayed continually to God, not to the gods, not to the emperor, but it says to God. And you'll notice in your text that God is capitalized here because it's talking about God proper. The true God. So what was he? Well, he was probably very similar to that Ethiopian eunuch that we encountered earlier in the book of Acts. He was what we call a God-fearer. He had not converted to Judaism But he was interested, and he believed that the God of Israel, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, was the true God.
1: And we're told about the
0: ninth hour of the day, he saw clearly in a vision an angel of God come in and say to him, Cornelius. And he stared at him in terror and said, what is it, Lord? It's interesting to note that any time people encountered angels in the Bible, they were always terrified. You know, those lovely little cherubs that we have up there at St. Philip's on the pillars... Chances are angels do not look like that.
1: Whatever they are,
0: they're very impressive beings and they were terrifying and he was terrified. And the angel said to him, your prayers and your alms have ascended as a memorial before God. In other words, God has heard your cries. He's seen your good works. And he has chosen you, Cornelius. Now, this raises a question. Was Cornelius already saved at this point? And I say it raises a question because we know that we're saved how? By grace through faith. Are we saved by works? No. But is there a place for works in the Christian life? Well, of course, they are the fruit, we're told. You'll know them by their fruit. So there's a place of good works, but good works don't save anybody. And yet the text says here, your prayers and your what? Alms have come up as a fragrant offering before the Lord. Now, the Book of Common Prayer makes it very clear that God is not impressed with good works that are done before his salvation. Because God is not simply concerned with what we do, but why we do it, what our motivation in doing it is. So the only works that are truly pleasing on God's side are those that flow from the new life of Christ being within you. And that raises the question, well then was Cornelius already saved? Even though he was a centurion, even though he was a Gentile, Even though he had not yet heard the gospel proper, was he already saved? Well, the best that we can say about this is that this is probably an example of provenient grace. The grace that goes before. Understand, God has been working. If you come to faith in Jesus Christ, that's only because God has already been working on you. God has already been working in your life. When when C.S. Lewis tells the story of his conversion, uh, he talks about, uh, on one occasion, being on the top of one of those double-decker buses that you see in England, and he was riding along, and he was wrestling with all of this, and he said, I knew at one point, I was just, I felt like I was in a a lobster. I was in a lobster shell, or as though I was in a suit of armor, and I knew that I had a choice to either unbuckle the armor or keep it on. And he said, I could not keep it on. He said, I had to unbuckle the armor. I I had to let myself go. I had to believe in God. He said, I made the choice freely. But then he said this. He said, but as I look back, I realize I couldn't have made any other choice. How many of you like the hymns of Charles Wesley? I love Charles Wesley. The two Wesley brothers, of course, had a tremendous impact on Britain and on America. Um, But both of those men had been ordained before they were converted. And uh, they were both abject failures. Charles was more musically inclined than his brother. And Charles had always wanted to write hymns, but he had never been able to do it. After his conversion, listen to this, he wrote 6,500 of them. Among them, Hark the Herald Angels Sing. Oh, for a thousand tongues to sing. And one of my favorites, And Can It Be. It's the story of his own conversion, written in 1738. And listen to how it goes. Just this stanza. Long my imprisoned spirit lay, Fast bound in sin and nature's night. Thine eye diffused a quickening ray. I woke the dungeon flamed with light. My chains fell off, my heart was free. I rose, went forth, and followed Thee. amazing love. How can it be that thou, my God, shouldst die for me? Now listen to how he described it. Long my imprisoned spirit lay, fast bound. Same thing Lewis was describing, like being in a lobster in sin and nature's night. Well, when you're fast bound, what can you do? He was like in a straitjacket. He could do nothing. But thine eye diffused a quickening ray. What does that word quickening mean? You know what it is coming back to life. The quick and the dead. Thine eye diffused a quickening ray. I woke. The dungeon flamed with light. My chains fell off. My heart was free. I rose, went forth, and followed thee. He didn't say, I was fast bound and I decided to unbuckle. He said I was fast bound and there was nothing I could do. I was dead. And you made me alive. And the dungeon flamed with light. And my chains fell off. My heart was free. And it was only because my chains fell off and my heart was free that I was able to rise, go forth, and follow thee. That's called provenient grace. God was working on him all along. Preparing the way. So that when finally the gospel broke through, he chose Christ. But in a sense, that's only because Christ had already chosen him. And that's why Paul says, oh, the power and the majesty, the inscrutable wisdom of God. I think that was the case with Cornelius. Let me show you an example of this in a powerful way. Now, I'm, I'm talking about something that's controversial here, and I'm just going to, in three minutes, throw it out there like a grenade and, and let it go off and then not unpack it completely for you. But turn to Ephesians for just a moment, only because there's not enough time to do it. But turn to Ephesians chapter 2 for just a moment. Here's what Paul says in Ephesians 2. Listen carefully to these words. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, Like the rest of mankind. A couple of terms to note here. Paul says, as for you, you were what in your trespasses and in your sins? Dead. That's the first thing we need to understand. Spiritually speaking, before Christ comes in, we are dead in our trespasses and in our sins. He doesn't say we're sick. Now, if a person is sick, is there the chance of recovery? Yes. Yes. In fact, it doesn't matter how sick they are, as long as there is breath in the body, as long as there's a pulse, as long as there is a brainwave, there is the chance, be it ever so small, of recovery. But when a person is dead, what can they do? When I was at St. Helena's in Buford, I would sometimes practice my sermons or work out a theological thought by going through the cemetery. Now, I, I, I probably preached hundreds of sermons to the dead people at St. Helena cemetery. And never once, in all those years, did anybody ever respond to my altar. <laughs> I like to say, sometimes that was good preparation for Sunday morning when I went into the wheelchair. But nevertheless, but let me ask you the question, why did anybody respond? Because they're dead. I mean, it's just not hard to figure out. They're dead, they can't do anything. Paul says, as for you, you were what? dead in your trespasses and in your sins. So God could send a messenger to preach the word, but they can't respond. Why? Because we're dead. Now, it's interesting. He says, as for you, we're dead in the trespasses and sins in which you used to walk. And they he said, wait a minute, it doesn't make any sense.
1: If we're dead, we're dead. But we're walking
0: about, Paul says, yes, physically you're alive, but spiritually, as far as your relationship with God is concerned, you're dead. And you're blinded to the things of God. So if a person is dead. And they're going to hear they have to hear the message of the gospel in order to be saved. What does God have to do to the dead person?
1: Well, he has to do
0: what Jesus did for Lazarus. Uh, Remember the story of Lazarus? Lazarus had died and he was in the grave. How long? Four days. Four days. In fact, the body had started to decompose, and when Jesus got there, he says to Mary and Martha and all the people that are weeping, and they're standing outside the tomb, crying, oh, Lazarus, come back, and Lazarus, and Lazarus never came back. Why? Because he was dead. Okay, we got that. We got that part, he's dead, so Lazarus can't come out of the tomb. Jesus gets there and says, roll away the stone, and what do they say? Oh, he can't roll away the stone, because the body has already started to decompose. Actually, the King James Version is, is much better. They say, he's stinking. Yes, exactly. That's what the King James said. He's stinking. We he cannot roll away this stone. He's not only dead, he's started to decompose. We're beyond the point of no return. So if Lazarus is ever going to come out, what does God have to do? God has got to make him who is dead alive again. That's the only way that Lazarus can respond to the call. Come out. That's what Paul is saying about us here. As for you. You were dead. In your trespasses and in your sins. And you were by nature. Listen to this. Children of wrath. Like the rest of mankind. Most of us think though. Well, aren't we all children of God? And that what we hear these days. The fatherhood of God and the brotherhood of man. The Bible actually says nobody is a child of God by nature. We become children of God by adoption. We're children of wrath. We're under the judgment of God. But look at verse 4. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses and sins, made us alive. God came in and made us alive, even when we were dead. And that's why he goes on to say, It is by grace you have been saved, and not by works, so that no man may boast. Why? Because dead people can't save themselves. Only God. But God. I think that was the case in this centurion's life. He was dead in his trespasses and sins,
1: he was ignorant, he was a pagan,
0: he was a Roman. But God. I think those are the two most marvelous words in Scripture. But God. But God made him alive who had been dead. And he began to seek for the truth. God had been preparing him. And at the same time, God was preparing this other man. Who would unlock to this Gentile the riches of the gospel. And that other man, of course, was Peter, who we'll take a look at next week. This should be a message of encouragement to those of you who may have children or grandchildren who are not yet believers. No one is beyond the saving reach of God's grace. Why? Because at one point, we were all dead. And if God can reach in and save a Gentile and through these people who had been cut off, graft them in that he might save all his people. And he can do that with your loved one as well. So don't stop praying. Just pray that God comes in and makes those who are dead alive. That quickening ray, That their chains may come off. Their hearts go free. They may rise, go forth, and fall wherever he needs. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we give you thanks and praise for this great plan of salvation, which you formul- formulated before the foundations of the earth, which you set in motion at the time of the fall, which you fulfilled in the person of Jesus Christ, and set in high gear through the ministry of these apostles. We thank you for the preparation for the prevenient grace that was taking place in the life of people like Cornelius and indeed in the life of Peter himself, as he was prepared to be a man who would receive these Gentiles and proclaim the gospel to them. Lord, if there be any here today who are dead in their trespasses and in their sins, we pray that you would send that quickening ray of the Holy Spirit into their lives, that they might be made alive, that they might respond, that their chains might fall off, that their hearts might go free that they might know the wonder and the glory of your salvation, the inscrutable riches of this mystery now unfolded. For we ask it in Jesus' name and for Jesus' sake. Amen.